I'm here to declare my love for Hypatia the Philosopher. Who was Hypatia of Alexandria? The gifted ancient philosopher, mathematician, and astronomer. And what was so revolutionary about her ideas? What if we dared to look at the world just as it is? Let us shed for a moment every preconceived idea. Why were political elites so threatened by Hypatia's philosophical beliefs? You don't question what you believe. You cannot. I must. What was it like to be a female philosopher in ancient Egypt? I could just unravel this just a little bit more and just get a little closer to the answer, then, then I would go to my grave a happy woman. Why was Hypatia murdered? Our guest is Edward Watts, author of Hypatia, The Life and Legend of an Ancient Philosopher. Hypatia of Alexandria. I believe in philosophy. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Thank you for listening to this episode of Philosophy Talk. Learn more about the program by getting our monthly newsletter. Just text the word philosophy to 22828. That's 22828. And get access to our library of more than 500 episodes by becoming a subscriber at our website, philosophytalk.org. Now, on with the show. Who was Hypatia of Alexandria? What was so revolutionary about her ideas? And why did they lead to her eventual murder? Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Josh Landy. And I'm Ray Briggs. We're coming to you from the studios of KALW San Francisco Bay Area. Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus, where Ray teaches philosophy and I direct the Philosophy and Literature Initiative. Today, it's the first episode in our new series, Wise Women, generously funded by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. We'll be talking about the life and thought of Hypatia of Alexandria. In her time, at the 4th century, Hypatia was one of the most famous philosophers in Alexandria, and indeed in the ancient world. She studied so many different things, mathematics, astronomy, philosophy. Yeah, and she taught about them too. Under her leadership, the Alexandrian school was really prestigious, right up there with the Academy of Athens. People came from far and wide to study there, and they were from all different religions, too. Some of them were Christians, some of them were pagans like her. Everybody loved her. Well, not everybody. She did end up murdered by a mob of Christian extremists. Yeah, she was killed for her philosophical beliefs, and particularly for her Neoplatonism. Right, that was a system of beliefs developed by people like Plotinus. It said that the divine force at the heart of the universe is this thing called the One. It's purely intellectual, and it's also where our souls ultimately come from. Hypatia thought we could get closer to the One by living lives of contemplation. Yeah, it's such an interesting idea, and pretty inoffensive, too. Why on earth would Christians have a problem with it? Well, there was a rival version of Neoplatonism that was much more at odds with Christianity, and that version emphasized rituals, including animal sacrifice. Christians drew the line at sacrificing an animal to pagan gods. Yeah, yeah, but that wasn't Hypatia's fault. Her version of Neoplatonism wasn't even big on rituals. It was more about cultivating virtues, the kind that allow you to transcend the physical and experience the one. You're right, it was totally unfair. She got targeted by a guy named Cyril, the, the Bishop of Alexandria, who wanted to take down the Roman governor, Orestes. And Hypatia was a friend and advisor to Orestes, so Cyril started spreading these vicious rumors about her, and those rumors eventually got her killed. But nothing she believed was especially hostile to Christianity. Yeah, that's true. You know, in fact, many of her students were Christians, like Synesius, who wrote a series of hymns that 
kind of seemed to bring together Neoplatonism and Christianity. He described the divine as having these three different aspects, one heavenly, one angelic, and one earthly. It's just like the Christian trinity. That is totally fascinating. And Hypatia was obviously a really powerful intellectual figure. It's an incredible shame that she got cut down in her prime. She, she had a unified philosophical system. She knew a ton of math and astronomy. And she ran one of the most prestigious schools in the ancient world. And she accomplished all that as a woman in a male-dominated field. She's remained an inspiration to female philosophers throughout the ages. There's even a journal named after her. That's true, but don't forget that she wasn't alone. Pandrosian of Alexandria, Sosipatra of Pergamon, Asclepigenia of Athens. There were tons of prominent female philosophers at that point in history. Yeah, why don't we hear more about them? It's true there's now a movie about Hypatia, but she's still not a household name like Plato or Aristotle. Well, that's why we're doing this series on wise women. We'll be celebrating 16 unsung heroines of philosophy from Hypatia in the 4th century to Judith Jarvis Thompson in the 20th and 21st. Their philosophy has sometimes been overlooked and often underrated. But not around here. Amen to that. I'm excited to kick things off with Hypatia. In a minute, we'll be joined by Edward Watts, professor of history at UC San Diego and author of Hypatia, the life and legend of an ancient philosopher. But first, we sent our roving philosophical reporter, Angela Johnston, to find out more about the life and times of Hypatia. She files this report. In one of the final episodes of the popular TV show, The Good Place, a group of friends finally make it somewhere they've been trying to get to for four seasons. There, at a party, one of the characters spots his idol from across the room. Are you, are you Hypatia of Alexandria? Yep. How's it hanging? It's hanging really well. Um, I, I gotta say, I was expecting you to be still, you know, ancient Greek. Oh, well, no, we sort of stay current in this place. In this scene, Hypatia is played by actress Lisa Kudrow, Phoebe from Friends. And she's decked out in a Jacksonville Jaguars jersey with Hypatia spelled in big white letters on her back. Spoiler alert, she is apparently the only famous philosopher to make it into this so-called heaven. Plato, slavery. Socrates, too annoying. A loud chewer. Also, is it Hypatia or Hypatia or in the ancient Greek, who put to you? There's a lot of fun debate about this. You know what? Just call me Patty. Hypatia was a really extraordinary woman. That's Alex Petkus, a former classics professor and current podcast host. She didn't just teach philosophy. She didn't just teach people math and astronomy, which were part of philosophy at the time. But she actually managed to get into a position of leadership in her city, which was one of the great cities of the ancient world, Alexandria, which is in Egypt. When Hypatia was born in the middle of the fourth century, Alexandria was the second largest city in the world after Rome. It was bustling and diverse. You had Jews and Christians and pagans and Scythians and Egyptians and Romans and big business interests and organized crime. Hypatia got into teaching and philosophy through her father, a mathematician and philosopher named Theon. She apprenticed alongside him as he was teaching his students Euclid's theories of geometry. And at some point, Hypatia's dad decided those current textbooks weren't good enough. Theon said, I'm going to make a new edition of Euclid. And he brings in Hypatia to help him draw the diagrams. And when they finish the work, she gets to put her name on it. So they co-authored this. She eventually takes over the school and begins teaching students herself. But it turns out there aren't many other documents or texts by Hypatia that still exist. 
Scholars like Petkus have to reconstruct a lot of her life from her students' writings and letters. I did a lot of research on one student in particular, a guy named Synesius of Cyrene. Synesius also shows up on the Hollywood screen, where he has a minor part in the 2009 movie about Hypatia, Agora. What mysterious wonder do you all think might be lurking beneath the earth that would make every single person and animal and object and slave settle there? Synesius? In this scene, Synesius is in a classroom where Hypatia is teaching a room full of men of all different religions. Synesius is Christian. Hypatia is pagan. Outside the classroom walls, the religious battle between the two groups is violently heating up. But under Hypatia's lectures, it seems to be cast aside. Synesius, what is Euclid's first rule? If two things are equal to a third thing, and they are all equal to each other. Good. Now, are you both not similar to me? Yes. And you, Orestes? Yes. Now, I am actually saying this to everybody here in this room. More things unite us than divide us. Near the time of her death, Hypatia was an intimate advisor to the Roman governor, Orestes, and religious tensions were at an all-time high. The Roman governor, has this job of like, how do I calm the seas? Um, and we don't know exactly what sort of things she said to him, but the fact that she was there saying them, it's, it comes out clearly from our sources, both on what her, her life was like and also why she kind of became a threat to the bishop and why she had to go. Hypatia didn't want violence, neither did Orestes, but the new Christian bishop Cyril wanted to stir things up. You start to look around if you're a kind of average Christian citizen of Alexandria, and you're like, oh, there's a witch. Petkus says the bishop didn't call a hit, but his supporters thought he'd be happy about it. Her murder was brutal. Yeah, she gets pulled from her carriage in the street as she's on her way home one day by supporters of Cyril. And this just was shock and horror throughout the Christian world. That's not how we do business. And yet it's kind of gone down to their shame ever since. After her death, it's said that Alexandria wasn't the same, but Hypatia's legacy as an influential woman who questioned everything has lasted for more than a millennium. I believe in philosophy. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Angela Johnston. Thanks for that super informative report, Angela. I'm Josh Landy, with me is my Stanford colleague, Ray Briggs, and today we're talking about the life and thought of Hypatia of Alexandria. We're joined now by Edward Watts, He's professor of history at the University of California, San Diego, and the author of Hypatia, The Life and Legend of an Ancient Philosopher. Ed, welcome to Philosophy Talk. Thanks so much. I'm really glad to be here. So, Ed, you've written an excellent book about Hypatia. What first got you interested in her life and philosophy? I think the feature that particularly attracted her to me um, is biographical. Um, my mother and my daughter are both women who are interested in, in science and STEM. Uh, and my mother got her, her PhD in the late 1960s uh, and struggled to find a place in a male-dominated environment where she really could practice and think and create in a way that was true to her own ambitions and her own interests. So Hypatia managed to, to really succeed in the male-dominated field of philosophy. Can you tell us about what you think uh, her most significant contributions were? So I think the 
Uh, the most important thing about Hypatia is to step back just a little bit and, and understand what Alexandrian philosophy was like when Hypatia was born. Um, she was born to one of the most prominent mathematicians and philosophers in Alexandria, um, one of the last known members of the Alexandrian Museum, uh, and also a figure who had uh, dominated philosophical interpretation in this very rich and very well-established tradition um, that was privileging mathematics in its study of philosophy. And so there were two real ways to approach the relationship between mathematics and philosophy in antiquity. One of them said that mathematics is a tool to try to model the understanding of higher philosophical concepts. And this is something that, you know, the Plato, for example, would ascribe to. Um, the Alexandrians believed something different. They believed that the mathematical concepts uh, represent a pure embodiment of concepts like justice. And so numbers would equate with philosophical concepts in a way that they saw as more precise. Um, and this was the Alexandrian way of teaching philosophy in the fourth century. Uh, and it's the tradition that Hypatia was brought up in. And Hypatia's greatest contribution in that context is she convinced her father, who was the leading philosopher of this particular approach, that his approach was wrong. Um, and she flipped Alexandria from an environment where mathematics dominated what we would consider sort of higher level philosophy to one where they acknowledged that the concepts that Plato had put forward were superior to mathematical concepts expressed in numbers. That's really fascinating, but I understand it's not Hypatia's only contribution. What else did she do? Uh, the other thing that Hypatia does that is really quite remarkable is Hypatia believes that philosophy must be practiced in a public fashion. Uh, and so she sees her role as a philosopher as one that is both about individual and personal contemplation, um, understanding of text, but also working in her world to make everyone more philosophical to the degree that they're capable. And so that means teaching students um, on high-level philosophical topics. It also means advising regular people and gauging the degree to which they can implement philosophical ideas in their own lives but Hypatia genuinely believed that it was her role as a philosopher to manifest and express public virtues in a way that made her city more philosophical. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. Today we're thinking about Hypatia of Alexandria with Edward Watts from UC San Diego. How did a pagan woman become such a powerful figure in a predominantly Christian city? What can we learn from Hypatia about leading a virtuous life? And how can her example inspire us to take charge of our own narrative, even in the face of adversity? Intellect, virtue, and courage. Along with your comments and questions, when Philosophy Talk continues. If you want to find the soul, maybe look into the one, at least according to Neoplatonists like Hypatia. I'm Josh Landy, and this is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ray Briggs, and we're thinking about Hypatia of Alexandria with Edward Watts from UC San Diego. It's the first episode in our new series, Wise Women, generously funded by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Got questions about Hypatia and her philosophical world? Email us at comments at philosophytalk.org or comment on our website. And while you're there, you can also become a subscriber and get wise to our library of more than 500 episodes. So, Ed, you were just telling us about Hypatia's teaching and kind of outreach. 
Alexandria was a really big and diverse city, and she taught a lot of different kinds of people. How did she make Neoplatonic philosophy relevant to all of them? So this is a really great question, and I think um, to understand why it's so important, um, we have to understand what Alexandria is like. Uh, Alexandria is a city of perhaps 500,000 people, but it's an incredibly dense city. You know, it, it is on just sort of a limestone plateau almost um, that's surrounded by the Mediterranean Sea on the north and a massive um, freshwater lake on the south. Um, and so Alexandria is a city that has lots and lots of different religions, ethnic groups, um, languages. And it's a city that's also full of people who are coming in and out of the city regularly for business. And what Hypatia understood is that as a philosopher in this incredibly diverse place, it's her role to make sure that she is available to and accessible to everybody who can potentially benefit from her teaching. And so we know that Hypatia um, received visitors who would come to her house in the morning and she would um, interact with them, give them advice, help them if she could. Uh, but this was always directed in such a way where she would get these people closer to what she believed to be the appropriate way to behave um, as her philosophical system dictated. These were regular people. And so their ability to interact with philosophical ideas is somewhat limited. Um, and Platonists acknowledge this, you know, that if you are interacting as a, a leader, making your society more philosophical, you have to gauge those um, interventions in such a way that people can respond to them. But Hypatia was also a teacher. And so Hypatia um, <clears throat> led a philosophical circle that had uh, both regular students who would come in and take some classes, and then initiates who really bought wholly into the philosophical system. And for those initiates, the philosophical world that Hypatia uh, led was a family. So when we see their work uh, describing the community they belong in, they talk about Hypatia as their mother, the mother of their soul in essence, and their brothers um, and sisters in, in this world uh, are their fellow students. And so we can understand Hypatia working in this Alexandrian space in a way that's calibrated to interact with everybody on the level where they can most be affected by her ideas. So it sounds like it's a at least a two-tier kind of system where you have um, a kind of broader outreach to the general public and then maybe, you know, higher level, I don't know, pro classes, AP classes or whatever you want to call them <laughs> um, for folks who are really into it and and, you know, this maybe makes, it might sound, I don't know, hier hierarchical, but on the other hand, since this really is a, a philosophy of life and people are, gonna, are supposed to change their life on the basis of it, maybe, maybe that makes sense. It's too dangerous, perhaps, to, uh, to ask people to change their life if they don't fully understand what you're saying to them. But it raises another question for me, which is how broad is the outreach? So, for example... Uh, did she charge money? Uh, did you have to have money to get in? Did you have to have prior preparation? Were were there female students? How broad is the is the demographic here? Uh, so the teaching of philosophy, in principle, is not supposed to be something that is fee based. Uh, this goes back to Socrates, who distinguished himself from the sophists by not charging money for his instruction. In later um, later centuries in Alexandria, we know they did charge fees. But it was optional, right? You would have uh, examples from philosophical texts where we have the transcript of a teacher coming into a classroom and saying, yeah, I know uh, you're not supposed to be charging money, but if you really like what kind of instruction you're getting, you should like tip me, 
you know. So philosophy um, by like suggested donation. Exactly. By passive aggressive kind of uh, <laughs> suggestion. Um, in Hypatia's case, we don't know that she ever charged. Uh, it's, I think, very likely that Hypatia is the inheritor of her father's school. Uh, and that school was probably publicly funded to some degree. Um, but what that means, I think um, you had mentioned that this looks like a two-tier system. I think we actually have to imagine this is like maybe a seven-tier system <laughs> um, where you have you know, regular people who are only capable of being told, do this, don't do that. They aren't capable of understanding why you're telling them this. Um, then you have people who are responsive to philosophy, but they aren't exactly students of it. Uh, so the governor Orestes would be a good example of this, uh, where he is responsive to philosophy. You know, he he trusts that she is giving him good advice because it's philosophically inspired, but he's not sitting in any classroom. Uh, and then you have lower level students who come to get some instruction. So we know later in the fifth century in Alexandria, uh, there were students who were, for example, going to go to law school. But they decided to do the equivalent of like an MA in philosophy. So they'd sit and do a year studying philosophy. Then they'd go off and become lawyers. Um, so Hypatia is going to be dealing with people like that. But then she's dealing with the people who actually have the capacity to understand philosophical ideas, want to um, use those ideas to structure their life. And they join a community that is a kind of community of the soul where they devote themselves to figuring out how to practically live according to philosophy. And that's kind of the highest level. So Hypatia has all these ideas about how people are supposed to live their lives. How were you supposed to live your life according to Hypatia? There's a set of principles that you see laid out uh, that becomes in later Platonism a kind of scale of virtues that works all the way from the very basic kind of physical virtues through things like political virtues, all the way up to kind of virtues that are supposed to purify your soul so that you can come into a kind of union with, with the divine. And Hypatia is working off of a system like that. Uh, and what that means in practice, though, is, you know, her initiates are getting instructed in that system. So they understand why you're doing what you're doing, why you're living in the way that you're living. Um, and they, they understand both the actions and the principles behind the actions. For other people, what Hypatia is really going to be doing is just saying, look, like this is what I recommend we do because it's philosophically correct. And there's a, a sense in, in her mind that you know, these people ought to just trust her. You know, they, they can't understand the Platonic texts. Um, and we do have later Platonists who say it's dangerous to instruct them in texts that they're not capable of understanding. So I think what we what we should see with Hypatia is a, a set of um, instructions that guide you towards more just and virtuous behavior that are calibrated based upon what people are able to do. I see. And and so does just and virtuous behavior kind of consist in studying a lot of math so that you get close to the one? Uh, so I think if you are in the school that Hypatia is leading, math is part of this, but it's not the highest level thing that you're doing. Uh, so mathematics and, you know, and geometrical instruction, Plato even lays this out as a prerequisite for the higher level understanding of, of the forms. And so in Hypatia's school, unlike in her father's school, um, math would be something that would be understood as uh, like preparatory instruction so that you can understand more abstract concepts uh, as you move up the scale of virtues. And so in, in 
later Platonism, and, and we think this is probably true to some degree in Hypatia's school as well, there are texts that are specifically chosen to correlate with the particular type of virtue that you're being instructed in. And so mathematical materials are, are lower level, in Hypatia's view, um, instruction than, say, reading the Timaeus, which would be a, a very high level um, instruction. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. Today we're thinking about the life and thought of Hypatia of Alexandria with Edward Watts from UC San Diego. And we've got a question from a listener, Lisa in Pleasanton. Lisa asks, what were astronomers in the fourth century debating and what was Hypatia's answer? This is a really interesting question because the uh, popular understanding of Hypatia, shaped by the movie Agora, is that Hypatia is um, an astronomer who is a, a sort of precursor to the understanding of um, a heliocentric universe. And this isn't really what she's talking about. You know, when, when they're talking about astronomy, um, they're conducting observations, they're interested in principles, but they don't have a, a Copernican sense of what the universe is. But I think that the, the important thing with astronomy in antiquity is to understand that in many contexts, astronomy is also intensely connected to astrology. Uh, and so when you see people taking observations of the stars, this is something that's also connected with a sort of divine practice uh, and an understanding that the stars have a very direct influence on what's happening in the world. Now, we don't know for sure that Hypatia um, subscribed to that in the way that other Neoplatonists did. We just don't have the material to say that. Um, but we do know that she's very interested in constructing and utilizing instruments to observe the stars. Uh, we know that her student, Synesius, actually asks for how you can, you can get something like this. Um, and we also know that later philosophers, later Platonists, deeply um, appreciated the connection between astronomical observation and astrological projection. Uh, so I think that we have to see in the study of astronomy, not what the movie Agora says, which is a kind of um, proto-rationalist way of understanding the, the heavens, we have to understand it on the terms that someone in antiquity would, which is that astronomy and astrology are linked, intimately linked, and they're intimately linked as well to the understanding of the divine and how the divine fits together with this temporal world. Okay, so let's think a little bit. I want to unpack this notion of, of the divine as understood by Neoplatonists like Hypatia, because uh, there she is, a prominent figure, public philosopher, leader of a school, famous Neoplatonist. So what is this Neoplatonist? Where you, you've got Plotinus, you've got Porphyry, you've got Iamblichus, these big figures uh, of the movement alongside Hypatia. Um, the notion of the one, some kind of transcendent first principle that somehow gives rise to intellect and intellect gives rise to soul and soul generates the material world and, and we're part of that, but we can somehow rise above the physical, rise above the bodily to, to contemplate the one, and, and Porphyry adds the idea that the one is God, and, and Iamblichus says it's somehow there are rituals you can do to help you um, get back into touch with the one. Say a little bit more about this. Clarify all this for us. Um, some of this seems clear to me, and, and some of it I want to understand better. So I think uh, you laid out the system quite well. Um, I think the one thing that in the fourth century context we have to understand is there are two approaches, the Amblican approach and the, the sort of Platinian and Porphyrian approach to bringing your soul back up the hierarchy so that you can communicate and unify with the divine. And those traditions are at odds with each other. So what Plotinus and Porphyry believed is 
you know, you as an individual have a bodily component and a sort of psychic or soul component. And if you are able to uh, fully interact just with reality on that level of the soul, it's possible that you can then rise up the chain of being from the material world to the world that is inhabited by the divine and ultimately potentially unify yourself with the one. It's very hard to do. Uh, we know that Porphyry struggled with this. And in, you know, in the life of Plotinus, he talks about only achieving this very few times and going into depression because it was so hard for him to do this. Um, the Amblican structure is a little bit different because the Amblican structure says, well, yes, this, this principle is the same, but there are ways to kind of shortcut the approach so that you can do it better and do it more regularly through particular rituals. Uh, and this, these are rituals that are called theurgy. Um, the Amblican tradition wins out ultimately over the Porphyrian tradition. Um, but in the fourth century, it was not at all clear that would happen. So the Amblican tradition is, is the tradition that, for example, the Emperor Julian adhered to. But in philosophical circles, there's a, a real conflict in the time of Hypatia between these two approaches. Uh, one of them, the ritually dominated one, of course, is a problem for Christians. Um, but for pagans, it actually seems like it works better. You know, the, the religious experience, it's more intense. Um, the ability to achieve union is more regular. Uh, and therefore, it's more attractive. But if you are in a diverse city like Alexandria and you're trying to teach a Christian population like Alexandrian Christians are um, studying under Hypatia, this Iamblican approach does not work. It's absolutely impossible for this to work with Christians. But the Porphyrian approach can work. And so there is a market of Christians who want philosophical training from somebody who's going to be respectful of their traditions, but also someone who, who has the, the chops to really do this well. And, you know, and that's what Ibatia is understanding. Okay, but this brings us back to something we were talking about at the beginning and we also heard about in the Reverend Philosophical Report, which is, uh, tragically, she ended up murdered at the hands of a Christian mob. So for a while, somehow it was working uh, in terms of her appealing to a, a, a broad audience. And then sort of suddenly it wasn't. Um, can you say a little bit more about what happened? So the bishop in uh, Alexandria at, you know, for most of Hypatia's teaching career was a man named Theophilus. And Theophilus had a good working relationship with Hypatia. They didn't exactly trust each other, but they uh, interacted well enough that um, Theophilus, for example, will uh, officiate at the wedding of Synesius, Hypatia's student. But Theophilus had anointed his nephew Cyril as the uh, bishop-in-waiting. And when Theophilus um, died, it was at the end of a long illness where the position of bishop was sort of absent. There wasn't anybody actually running the show. Theophilus was there in name, but he wasn't able to actually do the job. And this led to a contested election um, where there was violence in the streets between Cyril and opponents. Once Cyril became bishop, he started exacting revenge against people in the city. And this caused enough trouble that the governor of the city started trying to figure out how to put together an anti-Cyrillian party. Hypatia was chosen to, to lead this because of her connections, because of her strong credibility as a philosopher, and because of her work in uh, serving Alexandria and Alexandrian political life in a philosophical way, um, she seemed a natural person because also, of course, she's not Christian. So she has no interest in who the Bishop of Alexandria is. The problem is she did the job too well. 
And so she creates a philosophically inspired group of people who are a credible threat to Cyril's ability to do what he wants in the city of Alexandria. Uh, it gives the governor enough um, cover that he can begin to oppose Cyril and work against Cyril. And Cyril then singles out Hypatia as the, the core of the um, power base that the governor is using against Cyril. And so she becomes a target uh, in large part because she's so good at what she's doing um, that, you know, she has to, in the view of um, some Christians, be kind of removed from the political scene so that Cyril can do what he wants. So many echoes today on scrupulous leaders finding it expedient to whip up frenzy among zealots against scapegoats and innocent people getting killed. Uh, but you're listening to Philosophy Talk. Today, we're thinking about Hypatia of Alexandria with Edward Watts, author of Hypatia, The Life and Legend of an Ancient Philosopher. What is Hypatia's philosophical legacy today? Can we create a world where more women philosophers get the prominence they deserve? How can we preserve their insights for future generations? A female future for philosophy. Plus, commentary from Ian Scholes, the 60-second philosopher, when Philosophy Talk continues. Across the universe, Hypatia of Alexandria definitely changed our world. I'm Josh Landy, and this is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ray Briggs. Our guest is Edward Watts from UC San Diego, and we're thinking about the life and thought of Hypatia as part of our new series, Wise Women, generously funded by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. You can find all the episodes in the series at philosophytalk.org slash wisewomen. So, Ed, we've got a question from a listener. Lana from San Francisco writes, I know there's a journal of feminist philosophy called Hypatia. It seems like she's become a feminist icon in the last century. How warranted is that reputation? It's absolutely warranted. Um, but I think the reason we know of Hypatia now is not the reason why we should think about Hypatia as a figure who is warranting um, attention for 2,000 years. Uh, Hypatia is remembered now because she was killed. She had no control over that. It was not anything where she exercised any agency whatsoever. Something was done to her. And we remember her because she was a, a martyr at a moment of, of great social change. That's not why we should remember her. What we should remember is that this is a woman who changed philosophy and changed her city on her own terms, understanding full well what the consequences of that would be for her as an individual. So, Ed, can you tell us a bit about Hypatia's legacy now? Uh, so Hypatia has been a figure interpreted and reinterpreted many, many times over the past uh, 1600 years. Uh, so in the 5th century, initially, Hypatia became a symbol of a society spinning out of control. Uh, I think the, the best example of this is a historian named Socrates Scholasticus, who has a little coda at the end of his history where he talks about um, bishops overreaching into political affairs and the negative consequences of this. And he stacks the consequences from least severe to most severe. The second most severe consequence of bishops overstepping their bounds is the sack of Rome. The most severe is the murder of Hypatia. And so in the fifth century, what you have is a, a sense that 
this is something that just should not happen. And Hypatia becomes a symbol of an individual occupying a role that is understood to be respected um, and tolerated and valued, and she's murdered because of it. By the time you get into the 6th and 7th century, you start having somewhat different traditions, um, particularly in like the Egyptian church, where Cyril is a saint and therefore Hypatia is a villain. Uh, and so you have in the 7th century a set of materials from Egypt that talk about her effectively like she's a witch. Uh, and that she's using rituals and magic to seduce Orestes, the Roman governor, so that he opposes Cyril. Uh, by the time you get into the medieval period, Hypatia is known as a kind of exemplar for what women can do uh, as intellectuals. And so there are examples of like Byzantine empresses who are compared to Hypatia uh, because they, like her, are intellectuals who are functioning in a social way. Another shift happens as you move into the Enlightenment. And here, there is a, a real tension because people are now pushing back against the idea of Cyril as a saint. Uh, and there's a real tension of what Hypatia then means. Um, one tradition that I think is particularly appealing uh, is embodied by a set of works that, that are published in the early 18th century, where a French woman, we don't know her name, she's just Mademoiselle B, uh, she commissions someone to write a biography of Hypatia. Uh, and she doesn't get the biography that she expects. The person writes a defense of Cyril, in essence. Uh, <laughs> and Mademoiselle B writes into the journal and says, in essence, well, I mean, that's nice, but really Hypatia is a symbol of what women can achieve if they're allowed to do it. We don't know who she is, um, but we know that there is already in the 18th century a sentiment that Hypatia is an exemplar of what society could be if it allowed women to occupy a prominent place in interpreting philosophy and in teaching in, in the world around them. And so by the time we get to the 20th century, that legacy of Hypatia is uh, one that has emerged. It seems like the, the Hypatia as a symbol of women achieving things is actually pretty recent. Uh, she starts out as a symbol of just uh, people being murdered by this despot or people who ought to be murdered by this despot because he was right. Uh, I'm always kind of ambivalent about this idea of being held up as the exemplar of one of your kind who can do philosophy as opposed to just a person doing philosophy. Do you have thoughts about how to navigate that? Uh, I think the easiest way to navigate that is to understand that Hypatia is the best attested of these female philosophers in antiquity, but she's not the only one. There are other female philosophers who we know about. Um, we are, there are other female philosophers who we know ran schools. None of them were as successful as Hypatia, uh, but we know they existed. The other thing that's important that makes Hypatia a kind of singular figure in ancient philosophy is she's the last one to run her own school. Because of her murder, what we see are women philosophers continue to teach, but they do it now under the this sort of heading of a male-led school. And so we have women philosophers in the later fifth, and I think in the sixth century, who are doing some teaching and certainly belonging to philosophical communities, but they are not leading their own school like Hypatia. That makes sense. I mean, you, you've even got later Neoplatonists like uh, Edesia, Asclepigenia, Theodore of Emesa. Uh, but as you say, they're, they're not as powerful, they're not as prominent. Uh, they're not such public figures as Hypatia. But that's interesting. In a, is, you know, one of the things that makes it interesting is that she doesn't herself, that is Hypatia herself, doesn't seem to 
have feminist things to say, right? She has lots of things to say about mathematics and about astronomy and about philosophy. But it seems like as a Neoplatonist, her philosophy can't have that much to do specifically with feminism because it seems like that would ultimately be about something in the material world and we're supposed to transcend the material world. So, so how does her thinking intersect, if at all, with feminism? So there's, I think, a really interesting um, point that we can build on with, with that comment. Uh, I think, and this is somewhat controversial, in Hypatia's view, the soul is not gendered. And if you're living in a community that's governed by the soul, gender doesn't matter. Uh, so there's actually a, an account that we have that's a, a great summary of this view. So one of Hypatia's inner circle students falls in love with her. And Hypatia initially tries to use Pythagorean music to calm him. And he's too How far gone. How does that gone. go? Uh, that's a good question. <laughs> there is a sense in, in Pythagorean traditions that, you know, that music is a way to sort of organize and reorganize the soul and return it, kind of check it back into where it ought to be. Uh, and so Hypatia tries this. doesn't work. Uh, she then, in, in, it seems, in a public space, takes out a menstrual pad, shows it to him, and maybe even throws it at him and says, this is what you love. And it shocks him because it makes him recognize that what he's in love with is a physical body when really what he has is a connection to her soul already. And that connection to her soul is what matters. So I think on some level, what, what we see with Hypatia is a, a figure who appreciates the um, non-gendered way that a soul can work, but also understands that for most people, she will be seen as possessing a female body. And there's a, a challenge that comes about from interacting with people in a world who are not appreciating what she actually is and what she's actually doing, um, and it causes problems for her. But she's willing to accept those problems because her philosophical mission is so important. You mentioned that, that some of your readings of Hypatia were controversial, and I understand this is because not all of her writings have survived. What have we got of her that we, we are getting evidence about her ideas from? Yeah, like nothing. <laughs> we have a mathematical text that is probably her dissertation. And so this relates to a very early phase in Hypatia's career when she's still working under her father. Um, we have texts like the, the anecdote that I just shared um, that I think if Hypatia were a pre-Socratic philosopher, we would say, okay, well, that's a text. We're, we're totally fine with that. Mm -hmm. But because she's a late antique philosopher, we just say, oh, that's, you know, that's just something that appears in a biography. We don't take it seriously. So I think that there are a few texts like that from Hypatia that we can use to understand practically how her philosophy works. We also have letters from her student, Synesius of, of um, Cyrene, that shows him interacting with her in a fashion that allows us to, uh, to suss out kind of what her basic ideas and practices would have been. So she sounds a little bit like Socrates in this way, where... There are no extant writings of Socrates, probably because there were no writings of Socrates. But we have all of these other reflected pieces of information about her and about him. Yeah, I think that that's probably a good a good way to frame it. Um, the other thing that I would just add is um, we have a tendency to think that what ancient philosophers write is what they specialize in. Uh, and it is how their entire philosophy worked. And I think that's not true. You know, they participate in a system where philosophy guides their entire life. What they choose to write about is what they choose to write about. And so the fact that we only have a mathematical text from Hypatia doesn't mean she's just a mathematician. It means that's what she chose to write. But this absence of a great deal of text from her sort of allows the later centuries to 
inscribe their version of her onto the walls of history, right? So she's sort of like a cipher, and you, she can be a symbol of clerical overreach. She could be, um, you know, in the Enlightenment, a philosophical martyr, and then the 19th century, a martyr for science, and, and these days, a, a, a feminist icon. Do you think um, this Enlightenment sense that it's really all about... Um, the, you know, the misbehavior of, of, of religious authorities is still alive today. I think about the fact that, you know, Cyril got canonized. He's Saint Cyril. <laughs> is, is that still a part of her legacy today? Uh, I think that it is part of her legacy. And I think the other thing that's important for us to understand is the tradition that Hypatia embodied dies with Hypatia. Uh, this idea of, of a Christian-friendly Platinian, Porphyrian approach to philosophy in Alexandria does not continue after her. What comes in later is the Amblican tradition. And so the murder of Hypatia kills a tradition that might have survived and been more successful and more robust in, you know, in the future. Um, so I think that you're right, that what we have here is something where the legacy of Hypatia is very much determined by the fact she was killed, both in, in the historical memory and then also, of course, in the um, legacy of her philosophical system. So if we wanted this to not happen in the future, if we wanted the legacies of women in philosophy and philosophy in general not to be destroyed, what would you recommend? And not just not to be destroyed, but also to have the positive part of, of Hypatia's life, the part where she's taking control of her destiny and, and exerting this huge influence. Right, to thrive. <laughs> Yeah, I think what's important is to acknowledge that the philosophers that we are talking about are people, um, and they are people who face significant challenges in getting their ideas out, constructing schools, getting the, um, the p positioning so that their ideas can be meaningful. And we have to recognize their achievements as people because philosophy is a way of life. And philosophy in antiquity um, involves your ideas, but it also involves your practices. We have to acknowledge the significance of the practices and the sacrifices that she made. And when we do this and acknowledge the wholeness of someone's person, we have a much greater likelihood of um, preserving their legacy. Ed, this has been a really inspiring conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, I loved it. Thank you. Our guest has been Edward Watts, professor of history at UC San Diego and author of Hypatia, The Life and Legend of an Ancient Philosopher. So, Ray, what are you thinking now? I'm thinking I wish I could have gotten to know Hypatia when <laughs> she was alive and hear her for myself. Uh, and also that I really enjoyed Ed's book, which I found just deeply engaging and readable and would encourage our readers to go check that out. Oh, 100%. And, you know, yes, she's 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 not alive, but... You know, there are people like 19th century French poet Le Comte de Lille who think she hasn't really left us. He says she alone survives, immutable, eternal. The world's still turned beneath her two pale feet. We're going to put links to that and to Ed's book and to everything we've mentioned today on our website, philosophytalk.org, where you can also become a subscriber and dive deep into our library of more than 500 episodes. And if you have a question that wasn't addressed in today's show, we'd love to hear from you. Send it to us at comments at philosophytalk.org, and we may feature it on the blog. Now a man who could speed his way through the entire Library of Alexandria, it's Ian Scholes, the 62nd philosopher. Ian Scholes, Hypatia was the daughter of Theon, last known member of the Library of Alexandria, sacked and burned by the time she came along. She was super smart and taught to become, unusually for a woman at that time, a philosopher, astronomer, and mathematician. She also made commentary in ancient texts, and even made commentary on commentary, a respected activity back then. 
It is now thought that Book 3 of Theon's version of Ptolemy's Almagest, which established the Earth-centric model for the universe, later destroyed by Galileo, was actually written by her. She never married, made her own astrolabes, and taught that skill to others, activities she preferred to birthing whelps for the glory of empire, just speculating. As you can imagine from the trashing of the Great Library, 4th century Egypt was not really the time or place to be a thinking person. Jews and pagans and Christians were colliding all the time, and Christians colliding with each other as they fought among themselves to establish an orthodox canon. Still, Romans at that time were free to worship a pantheon of gods, often deities from separate cultures merged into a new one. Serapis was one such, a mashup of Zeus and Osiris. His temple housed the remains of the Library of Alexandria with statues of other gods and lecture halls for pagan teachers like Apatia. She was a Neoplatonist, they say, meaning she was kind of a syncretist on her own. Apatia encouraged personal meditation on the nature of reality, and her philosophy was not tethered to any particular deity. Since Alexandrian schools were not divided by religion, she taught both Christians and pagans, making allies of both. Though sympathetic to the new religion with several close friends in the church, Hypatia viewed herself as a philosopher and was considered pagan. She gave talks attended by government officials wanting her advice. Her sex may have irked her Christian adversaries, fixated on restricting women's influence, but she was aristocratic and influential, and her public lectures drew crowds. She advised Orestes, Alexandria's Roman prefect, who was feuding with Cyril, the bishop of Alexandria. Orestes was Christian, but did not want to cede power to the church. Following a massacre of Christians by Jewish extremists, Cyril led a crowd that expelled all Jews from the city and looted their homes and temples. Orestes protested to the Roman government in Constantinople and refused Cyril's attempts at reconciliation. A rumor spread accusing Hypatia of stopping Orestes from making up with Cyril. Inevitably, a dread gang of monks called the Parabolani, supposedly formed to nurse the dying and the sick, but now a kind of 5th century version of the Proud Boys, or brown shirts, beating and killing at the whispered behest of this bishop or that, took to the street, dragged Hypatia from her carriage, ripped the clothes from her body, beat her to death with roofing tiles, and tore her to pieces. Yow. It seems that the greatest achievement of Hypatia was not introducing new ideas, but carrying the flame of philosophical inquiry into this dark, burning world. It's a tiny victory, I suppose, but it is known that her student, Synesius, became a bishop and incorporated Neoplatonic principles into the doctrine of the Trinity. But also heretics and texts and temples burned. Churches grew, and the path of faith grew narrower and more treacherous. Hypatia was pretty much forgotten for more than a thousand years, then around to become a ghost of what she actually was, which nobody even knows. Then she became a lot of things. For one, a kind of pagan martyr. After all, the mob that killed her believed or was told she was a witch. She became a kind of Christian martyr as well, because history does love a virgin martyr. She became a feminist role model with a scholarly quarterly named after her. We don't even know how old she was when she died. 35, 65, but representations of her tend to be old-school Roman. Marble, glimpsed from the side, draped in robes, handsome but not sexy, Lord, no. She was a teacher, children. Save that stuff for the schoolyard. Do we still have schoolyards? Do we still have schools? I guess we do. I don't know if we learn anything now, though. I'd like you to know that your exposition shows me that you've been paying closer attention than uh, one or two others here. Education, man, that is so woke. I gotta go. Philosophy Talk is a presentation of KALW Local Public Radio San Francisco Bay Area and the trustees of Leland Stanford Junior University, copyright 2023. Our executive producer is Ben Trefney. The senior producer is Devin Strolovich. Laura McGuire is our director of research. Thanks also to Merle Kessler and Angela Johnston. Support for Philosophy Talk comes from various groups at Stanford University and from the subscribers to our online community of thinkers. Support for this episode and all the episodes in our Wise Women series comes from the National Endowment for the Humanities. The views expressed or misexpressed on this program do not necessarily represent the opinions of Stanford University or of our other funders. Not even when they're true and reasonable. The conversation continues on our website, philosophytalk.org, where you too can become a subscriber to our library of more than 500 episodes. I'm Josh Landy. And I'm Ray Briggs. Thank you for listening. And thank you for thinking. 